Good morning. It is wonderful to be with you all here this morning. And um, if you've got your Bibles there, I'll get you to open up to Galatians chapter 5. The best chapter in all of Galatians. We're going to be reading, we're going to be reading, uh, if my math is correct, three verses. Now, I had high hopes that we would be doing more verses here this morning because I understand that for some, it, it, it feels like we're getting bogged down. We've been in Galatians for too long, but I, I just, as I was preparing this week and I was meditating on it, I was thinking about it this week, there's just, there's just too much good stuff to kind of just leave on the table and not to kind of talk about and to bring out um, for, for us here this morning. So we're going to be doing three verses and we're going to be reading from verse 13 of chapter 5 and it says this. It says, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. So for those of you uh, who are new, uh, for, or, and also for those of you who have been tracking with the Galatians series, Paul has been um, going hammer and tong at this idea of freedom that the gospel brings, this genuine freedom that uh, is brought about by Jesus. Not just a freedom from sin, but also a freedom from uh, a religious expectation that is placed upon you by many communities and many places. And specifically, the, the freedom that he's talking about in his context is the freedom from becoming culturally Jewish in order to become part of those who are right sta- in right standing with God. To become uh, free from that expectation that you need to be... Uh, converted to uh, Judaism in order to be in right standing with God. And this is the thing that Paul has been going after because Paul has been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the whole region of Galatia and then coming in after him, some other false teachers have come along and begin to twist his words and begin to add additional things to the gospel, uh, which has really upset Paul. But we arrive here in our verses here this morning, and Paul reiterates again to his audience. Remember, he reiterated this already in, in uh, Galatians 5, verse 1. Uh, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. He reiterates again here in verse 13. For you were called to be free. You were called to be free. And that is a real freedom that he's talking about. That's a very real freedom that he is talking about. In, we, you know, we talk about, we use this language of freedom, but we oftentimes we don't think about everything that that implies and everything that that means. The freedom that is talked about is the freedom that Jesus has produced as a result of what he's done for us through the cross. He's freed us from the power of sin. If, if you've never heard that before, if you've never experienced that before, there's a room full of testimony here right now for those who have actually experienced the power that sin has over our lives being broken because of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's a room full of testimony of people who, having encountered Jesus, have experienced this freedom, this power that God gives through the cross to be free from sin and the power that it has over us. 
It's amazing. It, it, it's a truly an amazing experience to, to feel God unshackle your heart. Those things that, you know, you, you maybe couldn't help doing because it just felt like you had to do them. You just, these impulses and these urges and, 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 and all these sorts of things that you just couldn't stop no matter how much you tried to have Jesus all of a sudden come along and to unlock those chains and to set you free. There is a genuine freedom from sin through the power of the gospel, through the power of Jesus Christ. For some, it comes instantaneously. For those, for others, sometimes it is a work of grace over time. But there's a freedom from power of sin. There's a freedom from the principalities and the powers that would have you enslaved. These principalities and powers which are in the spiritual realm that would seek to enslave us. Jesus Christ overthrows these principalities and powers. He deposes them. He dethrones them at the cross. When God finds in Jesus the worthy servant who is finally able to be exalted to the name above every name, and in doing so, he dethrones the principalities and powers over our fallen world, which had each and every single person enslaved to their ways. There's a freedom in that. He has freed us and is progressively freeing us from the effects and the patterns of sin that destroy us and, to re and that re-enslave us. And that freedom is very real. That freedom is very real. And I want you to, I want you to, <laughs> like I said, the, the, the song that keeps coming to my head was like that song about wide open spaces, right? It's like you, you, were, you were in a, in a very tight little paddock and then wide open spaces. There's a freedom that is in the gospel that often makes people feel uncomfortable because of the implications of what that might mean. Well, if we're now free from all these religious rules, well, then I could do whatever I want. I would be free to do whatever I want. And that's true. That's uncomfortable. That's an uncomfortable reality that you need to live. That, okay, yes, that is what genuine freedom looks like. The freedom to go this way or the freedom to go this way. And unfortunately, what a lot of Christians do is, what a lot of Christians do is they, 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 they preach a freedom. They preach a freedom. And then as soon as somebody responds to that message and says, yes, I need to be free. I recognize the sin that has me in bondage. I recognize that I'm enslaved to these principalities and powers. Oh, God, would you free me? And they come in to the community of faith and they immediately get hit with, okay, you're free now, but you got to dress this way. you got to act this way. you got to serve in the church. you got to do this thing or you can't do this thing. Immediately, they begin essentially heaping burdens of religious expectations on them that they never truly learn to walk by the Spirit because they have either traded one religious system for another or perhaps in our context they've come out of no real formal religious system at all and all of a sudden they're given one and they're shackled with one under the guise of Christianity. I remember when I first got saved Remember the night so clearly because it was just like a, a night-to-day transformation. And this is just a little example. And there's no judgment or condemnation of these people. But the first thing that I wanted to do, I had this profound experience of Jesus. And the first thing I wanted to do was to go out to the pub where all of my friends were and to tell them all about Jesus. And I was immediately told, you can't go there. There's demons that will make you drink. And I was like... Well, 
okay. Now, thankfully, I, I'm not still bound by that, those rules. Like, you know, you, you can go to a pub and, and you don't have to be enslaved to alcohol if you go to a pub. All right? But immediately, you get slapped with these uh, rules and regulations within Christian communities that really are just another form of religiosity. Now, some of you are sitting here watching, you're looking at me here, and I can feel the uncomfortableness settling in because you're hearing, well, you're just saying that people can just go and do whatever they want. And you're just saying that people can just go and sin and there's no consequences. And, and, and you're saying that, and that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that there's a genuine freedom that comes when Jesus rescues you from your sin. But rather, but rather than simply learning a new set of rules within your particular religious community, we need to learn to walk by his spirit as he leads us into greater freedom. We need to be careful when we're discipling new Christians, new, new people who have just encountered Jesus, that we don't inadvertently disciple them into more dead religion, but that we disciple them to actually listen to the Holy Spirit, to discern what is good and true by the revelation of his word and the, and the witness of the Holy Spirit, and to step into that, for them to look at Jesus their teacher. Look at Jesus, their rabbi. Look at Jesus, the one who they are supposed to be emulating. And as they read the Gospels, as they witness Jesus' life being uh, uh, on display in the pages of the Gospels. What does this mean for me? How can I be more like my teacher, my king, my Lord, my Savior, Jesus Christ? Because the reality is true freedom brings with it risks. True freedom brings with it risks. The risk that people will abuse God's grace. <clears throat> you know, I, I was trying to think of an analogy that, that might help us understand this, 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 this freedom. And, and what, what it is, is it's not that you're now free from the consequences of action. It's more akin to, you know, when you're a child and you grow up in your family home, there's rules that hope, hopefully there's rules in your house for your children um, that your children should and must follow. Rules that good parents set down to keep their children safe. Rules that are put in place in order for children to grow up mature, well-rounded, you know, contributing members of society, all these good things, right? But the moment that child, I don't know, turns 18 and moves out of home, or more these days it's more like 25, 30 and moves out of home. Um, sorry, younger people. <laughs> all of a sudden, those rules go away, and then what are you going to do? Then what are you going to do? How are you going to live? And that's what I think it's akin to. It's akin to growing up. Experiencing the freedom of actually living in your own place. Experiencing the freedom of being able to set your own boundaries and being able to set your own, you know, what, you know, how you're going to live. Your own way of life. What are you going to do? The reality is that true freedom, it brings with it risk. It brings with it risk. Paul feels the need to add this caveat. 
He says, you were born for freedom. You were made for freedom. Jesus set you free so that you would be free. And he feels the need to add this caveat because he's feeling the exact same thing you're feeling is we can't just live life lawlessly. And this, unfortunately, is the way that some people treat the grace of God. It means it's actually a genuine risk. In fact, people in Paul's day were already preaching and teaching that they could use God's grace as a license or a pretext for sin. That if God is gracious, well, then we can, we can do whatever we want because then his grace will abound. Oh, how much more glorified would God be? Oh, people can see the grace of God on my life by all the awful things that I'm doing. Um... When I first became a Christian, um, there was no real kind of tutorial about how to be Christian, you know. And so um, I, I, got, I got saved in like 2004, and that was kind of like the tail end of the What Would Jesus Do bands trend. Some of you are old enough to remember. Um, <clears throat> and so there's these, these little fabric bands, and they would just have WWJD on them, right? And you're supposed to look at it and go, what would Jesus do? Yeah. Now, I'm a, you know, and, and at the time it felt like, well, I, I've become a Christian now and I can't be a faithful witness to my school or, you know, or, you know my friends and all sorts of stuff if I'm not wearing one of these awesome bands. And, um, and so I got one. I got one straight away so that everyone would know I'm a Christian now. And um, unfortunately, what happened at my school was um, a bunch of other people got them. And they turned them inside out and back to front, and they were walking around going, Dad, DJWW, do just what you want. And that's, that's the exact attitude that people have towards grace. When they hear about the grace of God, they hear about the love of God, they hear about the goodness of God towards them, they're like, great, I'm just going to continue keeping on, keeping on with whatever I want because now I know that God's cool with it because he loves me. And the reality is that just reflects the attitude of many when they hear about the grace of God. Well, if God is so gracious, I'm just going to abuse that grace. God's loving. He's gracious. So he must be cool with it. That's such a twisted way of viewing salvation. In fact, in fact I would go so far as to say that if that's the way that you're viewing God's grace, there's a very good chance you don't know Jesus at all. Especially given the fact that it's the very thing he's supposed to be saving you from. Salvation for many people is a ticket to heaven. They're like, cool, you know, I've got my ticket to paradise. And when I get to those pearly gates, I'm just going to flash my ticket and walk right in. When the reality is, no, God has come to save us from sin. He's come to save us from sin. Not so that you can continue to live in that way all the way until you die. He's come to liberate you from those sins. And to twist that is to completely miss the point. So that's why Paul feels the need to point it out here to the Galatians. But I want us to get focused on here because he says, only don't use this for freedom. This freedom is an opportunity for the flesh. But he says, but serve one another. I just want to point out to you that I think, based on what Paul is saying here, is that there's trouble brewing in Galatia. There's trouble brewing in Galatia because what I think is happening here is oftentimes when we, when we read this, <clears throat> and this could just be our uh, 21st century, century 
overly sexualized culture and all these sorts of things, when we hear an opportunity for the flesh, we, oh yeah, like he's in, that's usually probably talking about pornography or it's talking about some kind of adultery. He's talking about something, probably talking about something along those lines, right? But I think that maybe Paul has got his attention focused elsewhere because that's not the only fleshly outcome of our lives, I think he's actually talking about something else. Um, and, and the reason why I believe that is because of what he says here in verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. I want you to notice the language there. This, this seemingly comes out of nowhere. But, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed. Biting and devouring and you will be consumed. The same language used by the disciples, um, incidentally, uh, when, you, you know that incident in the Gospels where they're going out preaching, there's that one town that just wholesale rejects Jesus, right? And then there's two disciples, it's, I can't, I can't, uh, what was their names? Sons of Thunder. James and John. And they're like, you know what, Jesus? We got this. You say the word, we're going to call down fire. We'll call down fire on this town. We'll burn the whole thing up, right? He uses the language of being consumed, destroyed removed from the face of the planet. And Paul uses this language here. He says, you be careful. You be careful that you don't bite and devour one another. You can consume one another. Otherwise, you will be consumed. You will be destroyed and you will destroy each other. I think, my suspicion is this, is that this false teaching has brought division, division into the community. There's going to be some people who are on team Judaizer who are like, actually, you know what? That makes perfect sense. We're going to go ahead and we're going to start observing the Torah as our means of being righteous before God. And there's, other, there's going to be the other camp who are going to stick with team Paul. And they're going to be like, no, 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 we're not doing any of that. And what happens when you have divisions and factions within any community, but especially church communities. I don't know why the church is especially prone to this. It could just be the kingdom of Satan, like, like, like the, the kingdom of darkness especially wants to attack the church, but Christians are the worst for attacking each other over little things. So my suspicion is that the theological differences that were now present because of these false teachers in the church is causing strife Amongst those who are falling into the camp of the Judaizers. Perhaps they're walking around uh, maybe standing in judgment and condemning those who won't get on board and get circumcised and start following uh, Torah commandments. You know, potentially those who had stayed in Paul's camp, the freedom camp. They're like, yeah, well, you know what, Judaizers? We're just going to freedom harder now. We're freedom harder now that you guys are being all religious about this. You know, they got t-shirts with bald eagles and American flags. And they're going to freedom harder against these Judaizers. <clears throat> and when factions begin to form, when factions begin to form the church, it immediately presents an opportunity for the flesh. And the flesh presents an opportunity to the kingdom of darkness. And we treat those who are not part of our in-group we begin to treat them with less tolerance. We begin to treat them with additional suspicion than we do people who are in our in-group, who, who, who are in our tribe, right? Because, well, we inherently tend to trust the people who are in our tribe because they're like us. Of course they're trustworthy if they're like me. 
I, th- I think a brilliant example of this, <clears throat> I think a brilliant example of this is, is, the, is what's happening politically around the world at the moment. And, and, it, and if you're willing to observe both sides, both left and right, whatever that really kind of means and breaks down to, right? If you're willing to observe both sides, commentate on the other side, what you'll begin to observe is that the right has no tolerance for the left making any kind of honest mistake. None whatsoever. Likewise, the left has no tolerance for the right to make any kind of mistake whatsoever. And what happens is these two groups stand with each other, pointing at the other group, going, you see how awful they are? All the while excusing their own patterns of sin, their own patterns of behavior, that if the same behavior was being done by the other team, by the other tribe, oh boy, that would be, they would, they would launch many podcasts, many YouTube videos would be launched against that behavior. Look at this. Look at how wicked and evil these people are because they're not us. And we laugh about that. We laugh about that, but that happens in the church. That happens in the church. We, we so, as soon as any kind of factionalism comes in, we so quickly, well, of course they interpret the scripture that way. They're dishonest and they're interpreting it that way because they just want to sin. Maybe they are, or maybe they just don't agree with you about how to interpret that passage of Scripture. Wouldn't you want them to give you the same benefit of the doubt? How then should we live? I think, I think, Paul, I think Paul brings good correction. Of course, I think Paul brings good correction in, you know, in Scripture. Um, <clears throat> but I think Paul gives this beautiful correction. And this reminder to them that, look, despite the factions, despite the, troubling, despite the troubles that are going on, don't give an opportunity to the flesh. Don't give an opportunity to the anger. Don't give an opportunity to the factionalism, the hatreds, the strife, the jealousies. Don't give an opportunity to that at all. Instead, here's what you should do. Serve one another in love. In fact, all the law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting what Paul does there. He actually employs the use of the law to actually teach them to love one another. This is what Jesus did, right? When, when people would come to Jesus and go, oh, Jesus, you know, like, what's the most important commandment? He goes, what do you think? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength. And the second is very similar to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This became, in the early church, what, what, Peter, sorry, what James would call the royal law. Or perhaps what, you know, when they say, you know, we, we no longer are underneath the law. We're under the law of Christ. Right? They had this paradigm of understanding that they would submit to, because it's what Jesus taught, is that now that you've been brought into right standing with God, now that you've been brought into the family of faith because of what Jesus has done, how then should we live? 
How then should we live? Because our lives don't simply end with an intellectual ascent to Jesus dying on the cross, being buried in the grave, and then rising. It begins to affect our lives in a very real way. So how should it affect our lives? Well, it should be affecting our lives by living through this paradigm, the royal law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you say that, but then people begin to look at all the problems, perceived or otherwise, in the church. And they go, you know, we've noticed in these churches that just preach about God's love that there's still problems. There's still problems in those churches. And in fact, in fact, they are not tough enough on sin. And you know, maybe, maybe they're not. Maybe they're not. But love, love gets a bad rap in churches sometimes. Love gets a bad rap in certain circumstances because love in the modern context has been so co-opted by Hollywood and so co-opted by Hallmark and so co-opted by the culture that love has just become this superficial, nice, smiley, patting on the back. Oh, there you go, brother. It doesn't matter how you're living. You're doing well and the Lord loves you. And Oh, peace be with you no matter how little peace there actually is in your life and 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 it just becomes this superficial veneer as an excuse for never having difficult conversations and an excuse for never actually living out of the depth of what true love actually looks like but that is such an anemic view of love So sometimes people, in contrast, because they feel that's an anemic view of love, they respond by going, well, you need to talk more about the judgments of God. You need to talk about the wrath of God. People need to know, and I agree, they do need to know, but they need to know about those things in light of the love of God. You see, because God as judge is not opposed to the God who loves All of God's judgments are understood in light of the fact that he is a God who loves. They're not in competition with each other. God's anger at sin is not in competition with God's love. The reason why God is angry at sin is for the same reason that I would be angry at anyone who hurt my child. The same reason why righteous indignation rises up when we see the innocent taken advantage of. When we see the vulnerable downtrodden. We look at those things and go, that is not right. And an anger comes from within us. And if you think that God looks on sin and sees how it is corrupting the very image bearers whom he loves, how it's destroying and how we destroy each other, and there is not an anger that rises within him because of it, then you have not yet understood the God who truly is holy love. So Paul says, here's how you should treat one another. Rather than being adversarial, we want to serve one another in love. For all the law is fulfilled in this, love your neighbor as yourself. I want us to just meditate on the, the royal law here for a moment. Because oftentimes, like I said before, we hear the word love. And we go, yes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Loving my neighbor as myself. 
And we leave it there. We're like, yes, on board with that ideal. I'm on board with that sentiment. But have you ever taken the time to meditate on what that might actually look like in your life? What that might actually look like in your relationships? You know, I, 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 I've preached this before and I've shared this before, but if you want to be utterly transformed and to allow God to just like go through like a wrecking ball through your life, get to 1 Corinthians 13 when Paul begins to describe attribute by attribute what love looks like and begin to actually have a look at your life and ask yourself honestly before the Lord, does my life look like this? Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I exercising gentleness and self-control? It says love is not self-seeking. You could just stay there, right? You could just stay there and let that run through your life over and over and over again. And you will find over and over and over again so many of your thoughts, so many of your intentions, so many of your actions are in fact at best mixed, at worst, fully self-seeking. And when you find that, you begin to go, oh God, actually I am not. I may get along pretty okay with the people around me, but that's not because of love. It's because we have this self-interest, you know, we have this mutually agreeable social contract that we have. But true love is not self-seeking. True love sacrifices for the sake of the other. And then when you begin to look, about, look at that and you begin to think, God, how, how do I relate to you? Is my life truly yours? Truly. Is my life truly consecrated to you, given over to you? Because, God, I love you, so I am not going to be self-seeking in this relationship. To the best of my ability, I am laying all self-interest down. What do you want? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to give up? The beautiful thing about that is that the very God who is love comes and he doesn't subjugate you. He comes with that same love and says, I love you. And in fact, I gave my life for you. In fact, I came, I went to the lowest place for you so that you could be set free. And in fact, all the things that God will ever ask of you, all the things that God would ever lead you to do, no matter how difficult and how painful they might be, we have this assurance it is actually for our good. Because he's a God who loves. He's the God who loves. He's not doing it out of his own self-interest. He's doing it because he loves you. And in fact, the reality is, is that love, when truly experienced, love, when truly understood, is not this superficial, smiley, nicety patch on the back and nothing ever changes love. It is deep, and at times it can be incredibly costly. It is deep, and at times it is incredibly costly. So many Christians are stunted in their maturity because they never 
the, the thought would never cross their mind that the Lord might ask them to do something that might hurt in the moment. I want you to give up that sin. Oh, the Lord just loves me where I'm at. Yes, and that sin is slowly hardening your heart and destroying your life. I want you to go and I want you to reach out to that person. I want you to forgive them. Oh, Lord, that, that, I don't know. That's, that's scary, God. I, I just don't think you would ever want me to do something that's scary. The reality is, and I remember meditating on Psalm 23 one time, and I'm not saying this is absolute exegesis or anything like that. I'm just saying the impression that I felt from the Lord. I was meditating on Psalm 23. And Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who cares. Yeah, so I have what I need. Okay, Lord, you're my shepherd. You're the one who leads me. You're the one who guides me. You're the one who, who, who cares for me and supplies all of my needs. I have what I want. You know, Jesus, you lead me to green pastures and you lead me to still waters. And oh, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know that you are with me because your rod and your staff are a comfort to me. And I just stopped. I was like, Lord, I get it. You're good. And we could go anywhere, right? Green pastures, still waters. That sounds nice. Why we got to go through Death Valley? Again, not exegesis. Couldn't say this for absolutely certain. But the response I felt like the Spirit said to me was, because that's the way back. You're the one who went astray. You're the one who walked into death. You're the one who was enslaved in sin. And sometimes, sometimes as I'm leading you and guiding you, the way back to those green pastures and those still waters is right back through Death Valley. And sometimes it's going to be scary. And sometimes it's going to hurt. And sometimes it's going to be painful. But I can tell you this after nearly 20 years of walking with the Lord. Every time he has led me through a Death Valley, there's been green pastures and still waters on the other side. There's been goodness on the other side. And, I, and my suspicion is that for those of you who have walked with the Lord for long enough, that you have those testimonies too. And it's important for us to remind each other in service to one another that God is good and he does love us and he had, does have our best interests at heart, but not for your happiness. Your happiness is not his primary concern it's your healing and your wholeness and your restoration. So sometimes there are difficult things you're going to have to walk through. And he does want you to be happy. But as a, to quote Paris Reedhead, as a byproduct of your relationship with him. So I'm going to invite the worship team back. We're going to exalt the Lord and we're going to come to him and worship him once again. And if we could just stand. And if I could ask you in this moment of contemplation to consider this. What is my life before the Lord? What is my life before the Lord? Do I actually love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Not just am I willing to say that I am, but does my life look like that? As we contemplate the constellation of relationships that we have around us, God, am I loving my neighbor, those who are around me?
And can I ask us, can I ask us to, with humble and sincere hearts, to commit to actually loving and serving one another in humble submission. Not so that you can come here and serve me, but that you would serve each other in love. So Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you demonstrate to us what true love looks like. Love that transforms, love that changes, love that actually liberates from sin and death. We thank you, Lord, for the cross work you've done. We thank you, Jesus, for dying for the sake of our sins. We thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you, God, that you wash away all of our sins. We thank you, God, that you teach us to walk in the light. Lord, let us help us. Help us, Lord. We, we throw ourselves on your grace here this morning. Help us to walk in the light. Help us to walk in the light. As you are in the light. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you be ministering to hearts. That you would be convicting of sin. You would be convicting of, of things that are in our lives that are not right. into repentance away from those things and to and towards you.